This is Strange Assembly, episode 279, Gen 7. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast there or on the Apple Podcasts app. If you do listen to this podcast, we'd always appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review. It helps other people find the show. In the third installment of our Stuff Chris Played During This Day at Home Order series, I'm going to be talking about Gen 7, a Crossroads game. I first saw Gen 7 at Gen Con 2018, and it was something that, from a demo, interested me. But I had never sprung for the thing at retail, but then a year later, I was able to trade for it at a math trade. I do like math trades. I won't bore you about that here. And having traded for it, it then sat on my shelf for a bit. I got it at PAX Unplugged 2019, and it took a bit to to break out because I knew I needed a solid chunk of time where I could get multiple games in because this is exclusively a campaign game. It's not the sort of the thing in the base game where you would want to just play it once. You, in fact, need to be able to play a series of seven games. And with the whole no-kid activities and everybody having to stay home, it seemed like one of those, okay, now is the time we are going to get this thing to the table and play through it. So if you follow gaming, the thing that you may notice from the title of Gen 7 is the Crossroads game part of it, which is also the tag that was applied to Dead of Winter, right? It's Dead of Winter, a Crossroads game. So that is one of the aspects of Gen 7 is that it's going to use and in fact improve that Crossroads mechanic from Dead of Winter. However, other than the fact that it has this variation of the Crossroads mechanic, it doesn't really have anything to do with Dead of Winter. The gen in Gen 7 is generation. So you and the other players are part of the seventh of 13 generations of an interstellar starship that is going to colonize a new planet and give humanity a second home in the stars. You are officers on the ship. You have been awakened for your shift. You take turns being awake for some amount of time, and then going back in cryosleep. And still, despite people spending lots of time in cryosleep, it's expected, right? Like I said, it's going to take 13 generations. So this whole thing is just on the starship while you're in transition. And the setup for this, of course, is then that, oh, something goes wrong. Because if something didn't go wrong, then there wouldn't be much of a story. And this is a campaign game with a story. There is a big, fat story booklet that comes with it. And depending on the choices that you make, and to some extent on how well that you do, that story will take different paths, and that will affect in ways smaller or larger how later games in the campaign are played. Again, this is a campaign game. This is not a legacy game, so there is no destruction of anything. You can play the campaign multiple times if you wanted making different decisions, for example. So I would say that there are three mechanical and conceptual elements to Gen 7, although I will give you a bit of a preview by saying the fact that I conceive of it in these distinct ways may have affected 
how I thought of the game. But in, in general, there is, one, the proactive stuff that you're trying to do, two, the bad things that you're trying to stop from happening, and then three, the crossroads story element to it. Gen 7 is a fully cooperative game. There are individual success metrics, but note that there is no individual winner. You can gain better abilities as the campaign progresses if you do better in earlier games, but this is not semi-cooperative. There is no individual winner. The story is going to happen to all of you as it happens to all of you, so there isn't there's some maybe some personal satisfaction in doing better, but there's no competitive advantage that you're gaining over over anyone else. The core proactive mechanics are that Gen 7 is a dice placement game. You are going to roll a set of dice, which are mostly six-sided dice, which represent individual colonists. There's also an eight-sided die, which represents you, the officer for your team. You are going to assign your characters, and in for this aspect of it, a fairly straightforward Euro sort of element, once you add in the dice placement, right? you have a set of three locations where you can gather resources. You have a computers slash data area, you have a physical engineering area, and then you have a bio area. So you can get three different resources in those sections. And that represents three of the modules of this modular board that you're going to be playing on. Each of those sections of the ships also has a proactive do stuff with your resources section. So you are going to be completing a computer operations task. You're going to be completing an engineering operations task. You're going to be completing a bioscience operations task. And those are going to be, I play the card. I pay the resources, I get merits. So these are, like I said, this is something you get as an individual, but there's no winning. These aren't victory points. Each of those locations also lets you take another action when you're going there. In fact, there are going to be many times that it's the other action that you really want, although you get the most efficiency if you can do both. Going to the computer center will get you file cards, which lets you do extra things, pull a die back so you can reassign it again, or take an action twice, or get extra resources, whatever. When you go to the engineering section, you can get schema cards, and that is going to be a permanent ability that improves you in some way. Maybe you can adjust the value of your dice up or down, because, of course, since this game is a game that has dice placement, the value of your dice are going to affect exactly what you're getting. They may affect the order that things can be placed to collect resources, or it may affect the amount of resources that you're going to get. You might have a card that gives you more resources. You might have a card that lets you spend less resources when completing a task. But these are nice little boosts that you get for the rest of the game once you've got them out. Uh, And then the third section, the bio section, you can bring more crew members back out of cryosleep. So you're almost always going to do that on the first turn because it immediately gives you another die for the rest of the game. You usually don't actually do that again because for the most part, the games are four turns. And after your first one, it takes multiple dice assignments to activate again. So it, from a, an efficiency perspective, it isn't that worth it. There are two other spots. One is the conference room, right? The ops center. This is where you go to get 
operations cards. And the third one is the robotics lab, where you can assign someone there and you get a robot, which is a D12. So it definitely has its advantages. Each of the players is one particular aspect of the crew, and you can be a little bit better at that. If you're the engineering team, essentially you have your own engineering lab, which you can use to always get the maximum amount of parts to do engineering things. And that's true of the, the computer science people and the bioscience people as well. The robotics person is a little bit different. They start with a robot. So they, they don't have to go assigned to get it. They just have one fewer colonist and one more robot. The robot actually is the most useful in completing some of the critical tasks, which then leads us into the next section. So if the first section of the game is this straightforward, proactive stuff that you can try to do. Get resources, spend those resources to get merits, get cards that let you do these various actions better or take extra actions, right? So the second aspect of the game is, well, this is a cooperative game. And because it's a cooperative game, right, that means that there has to be something that you're trying to overcome. And the basic thing that you are going to overcome is critical tasks. These are something that has gone wrong with the ship. And, you know, if you don't go deal with this or go deal with that, the ship will start breaking down. And so you start having to use up your dice and your resources to deal with those. And you have to deal with that before not before, but you have to deal with that alongside trying to complete things to get you merits to let you improve a little bit for later games. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything about the possibilities of the campaign, but right, I, I will say that as the campaign goes on, depending on which path you take and depending on where you are in the campaign, there are going to be other things that you have to deal with in addition to the critical tasks or things that make the critical tasks harder than they normally would be. And so the very first game that you play will by far be the easiest game, although in general this is not a particularly difficult game. And so like I mentioned, the robots, one of the reasons why the robots are useful is that a robot can actually take up two spots on these group seats that they have. So a critical task might require you to assign three dice each of which are equal to the other. Or it might require you to assign two dice, each of which is one more than the one before it. Or you might have to play a die that is four or more, and then a die that is two or less, and then another die that is, you know, six, six or more. That sort of thing. And But the for a lot of those, the robot can be assigned. If the robot's an even number, then you can assign it to two of these equal spots, and it, right, you split the six up into a three and a three, and it takes up two of those seats, so it's only using up one die instead of using up two, which frees up more dice to go do everything else. So that's elements one and two, proactively completing stuff for merits. Element three is then the various things that are, are picking at you, and I'm not really going to go into those because those are going to change, again, depending on where you are, which campaign you're doing, what choices you're making, where you are. And the third element then is this crossroads story element. The most basic way that that manifests is in the Crossroads cards. Now, if you haven't played Dead of Winter, uh, a Crossroads card in Dead of Winter is a little story card, and during a given player's turn, one of the other players will be holding a card off the top of this deck, and there will be some trigger written on the card. And if that trigger happens, then that means that there's some story event, and you're like, you stop play, and the player who's got the card reads it to you, and maybe something happens, maybe you make a decision. There might 
favorite part of Dead of Winter when they happen. But from my point of view, it's a weakness in Dead of Winter is that the, the whole Crossroads card thing, they just don't happen often enough. They're so narrow in the triggers, you can go turns and turns and turns and turns and turns and no crossroad ever gets triggered. That's much less likely to happen in Gen 7. The crossroads trigger more. And what happens is that when a player assigns an officer die, once they've finished wrapping up all the given actions, then the player to their left pulls the top card of the crossroads deck and sees if something triggers. And you do still have to see if it triggered, but the triggers are much broader. The triggers are things like the officer assigned to the engineering section, or there are spots free in the ops center and everybody still has dice, which is one of these signs that it's probably going to possibly shove a bunch of your dice into the ops center. Uh, You also have a sort of mentor relationship with some other member of the crew, and depending on who you pick at the start of the campaign, those their cards will go in to the deck. And if they pop up as the card on your turn, then some event happens in your relationship with that person. And depending on the choice that you make, then it'll start having you go into the box and go into these other decks. And this is true of of a lot of these different things, right? At different times in the campaign, it's going to tell you, okay, stop using these Crossroads cards, use those Crossroads cards, or stop using some of the current Crossroads cards and add in some of these different ones with the relationship cards you're mostly just adding one for one. I had step one, depending on what decision I made, it's going to get me one of these two stage two cards. So it can actually blossom out to quite a few options in those. Now, I still wish they came up more than they did, uh, which was the, the sort of majority opinion. We were always eager when our officer dice got assigned to see what the crossroad is and what might trigger. One of the as most of us looked at it, advantages of being the most meritorious officer in a given game is that you have the spotlight in the next game, which means that when you might trigger a crossroad card, they'll look at the first one, and if you don't meet the conditions, then they'll look at a second one, so you get two chances. Now, we did have one player, a player who is not super interested in story in their games, who really did not like the crossroads because she just did not... Like, there was a possibility that the crossroad was going to mess something up, so... Didn't want that. She, she didn't want that. But the, the other others of the game actively wanted this to happen because that's part of why we wanted to play this is to see these these things. So that's the mechanical basics of Gen Seven. The question based on that is, of course, is this worth playing? Especially given that to really experience it, you've got to play seven games of it, the full length of the campaign. It's going to be pretty unsatisfying if you stop in the middle. But I have to be honest that while I had fun playing Gen 7, it wasn't great. And the only reason why we finished the campaign was me personally feeling like we had to finish this campaign, like we've started the campaign. We can't stop after four games. It was fun, but not fun enough that we actually wanted to play seven games of it. And so like, I've got the expansion sitting here, the Breaking Point expansion set, I'm pretty sure we're never actually going to get that out, even though it's got a competitive mode, so I I kind of want to try because it could address something. So why did we not have quite enough fun on this? The story was nice. The story was okay. It wasn't great. I've actually, having 
played through one because I didn't think we were going to play a second campaign. I looked through the rest of it, so I was able to see how different story choices wove together. And I just realized now that I'd even talk about how you make some of those story choices. I just talked about the Crossroads card, but you actually have player votes on which actions you're going to do to respond to different events. Like, this thing has happened. Someone's saying that this is a threat. Do you believe them? Or do you believe the other person? Which way do you go? And how you respond to these different things will affect what kind of adversity you're going to have to deal with as you're moving through the various steps of the campaign. So I think that element, it wasn't super exciting, but it was it was good enough. I, I think the the kind of problem that we had that we ended up not enjoying the central mechanical enough was that it felt like you wanted to be doing these proactive things to get something accomplished, but instead you were largely spending all of your time dealing with brush fryers. And that is part of why I said maybe the way that I'm mechanically framing it isn't helpful for my enjoyment, and it's more like I'm framing it mechanically like that because that's how we experienced it, and I, I don't know how to, to change that up, because there are a lot of times with the co-op game where the whole game is stopping the bad thing from happening. I have to accomplish good thing A before bad thing B happens. Gen 7 doesn't really play out like that. You, you learn the game, and you play the game, and you feel like there's this proactive element of the Euro dice placement system. And as time goes on, you do that less and less and less. So right, we, we have, there's an op center where you can go and get more operations task cards. We almost never did that after the first couple of games because you were just going to kind of squeak in the ops task cards that you started with, and almost all of your effort was going to be spent dealing with these other things that make you lose or even dealing with some new objective that they give you for that game, but the new objectives didn't feel like proactive things you were trying to accomplish. They felt like supersized versions of the critical tasks. And so you always had this tension where you felt like you wanted to do more of this proactive stuff where I get cards and I get resources. and. You just weren't really be able to play out that part of the game. Probably the, the other element that dragged it down for us mechanically was there's sort of two things. There's the I mean, one there's the alpha player problem, but more importantly, at least for me, there's the the what I call the puzzle problem, which is that it's sometimes in cooperative games you can kind of just sit down and math everything out and. That is really what we did almost every turn with Gen 7, right? It's not the sort of game where you just want to like, okay, everybody just take their turns without discussing. You're going to crash and burn if you do that. And even if you don't crash and burn necessarily, you're, you're like certainly going to be afraid that you're going to crash and burn, and it's not going to be super fun. So really, what we ended up doing every single turn was roll our dice, look at what cards we had in our hand, look at what the critical tasks were we had to complete, look at whatever mystery objective things there were that we had to deal with, and we just plan everything out 
at the very start. It was, okay, you're going to have to assign here, and you're going to have to assign there, and we're going to have to do it in this order. And you'd plan out like all these turns of dice placement, you know, like four players with five dice or whatever, all that stuff. You planned it all out at once in advance, and then actually executing it. The stuff that like feels like playing the game, like putting your die out and having something happen. You just go through lickety split. You can't completely math it out because there are things like you don't know which cards you're going to draw, but you have to plan it out. At least you feel like you have to plan it out assuming that, okay, I might draw a card, but I, I can't I can't rely on it doing anything. So I have to figure out what I can do. And then maybe if you draw a good card, you can adjust on the fly. Now, I will say that we were probably overly worried about that. You probably have a lot more room in the game to let critical tasks fail than we did, especially because due to various mechanical things that happened, as games passed on in the campaign, we assigned for resources less and less and less. And so, and frankly, we assigned to complete operations tasks less and less because we aren't ever drawing any other than the ones that started us with. And so the consequence in the short term of systems being somewhat damaged is to start blocking off some of those seats, and it just doesn't matter a lot of the time you're using other ways to get resources or you just have to get like the one assignment in. And so we we probably were overly concerned and playing too tightly and we probably could have done more of the proactive stuff and just, you know, strategically letting things fail, but it's hard to recognize that in advance, especially again like although it, it partially that wraps back around to the oh other problems start start popping up with some of the stuff that pops up is resource drains. So you really have a hard time actually building up resources to be able to do the proactive missions in another way, even if you let some of the critical tasks slide that you don't necessarily need them because you know if you spend turns accumulating resources, you're just going to lose most of them to various of these other mechanics that come up. So that was ultimately where we ended up with Gen 7. When we, f- we liked it when we first played it, we still liked it after the second game. And then essentially, the more we played it, the less we liked it. It just got more and more clogged. It felt like with mechanics that we were fighting against until by the end of it, we, we only played the last few games because I was like, no, we got to finish this campaign. So it, it's a shame. I liked the story elements of it. I liked the the central. I like. I've, I've taken a liking to dice placement games. I like that aspect of it. So it was like okay. It was a a moderate amount of fun for the first four games or so. But fortunately for us, unfortunately for Gen Seven, we live in a tabletop gaming world where we have many many options. And so something that is a moderate amount of fun is not really something that's usually going to make the cut. We've got things that are lots of fun or, you know, trying the new flavor of the week in hopes that it's going to be lots of fun and maybe it will be or maybe it won't, but you know. I don't regret trading for Gen 7. I'm glad that I was able to get it to the table and give it a try. I imagine if, uh, I'm guessing Gen Con's not going to happen this year, but hey, if I go to Gen Con or when I go to PAX Unplugged, it will probably go back into the math trade system and join the great circle of gaming life. 
So we have been talking about Gen 7, a Crossroads game. It was designed by Steve Nix and published by Plaid Hat Games, released in 2018. The expansion, uh, The Breaking Point, was released in 2019. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there on the Apple Podcasts app, the iTunes store, the Google Play Music store, or wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you are unable to locate Strange Assembly on your favorite podcatching service, please let me know. I'd like to correct that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. I always like to hear your comments, criticism, and feedback. Speaking of which, we always appreciate it if you can leave us a rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or anywhere else, but especially the Apple Podcast app because that does the most to help people discover the show. You can also find us on the usual social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter, facebook.com slash strangeassembly, and at strangeassembly on Instagram. If you super loved the show, you can also find us at patreon.com slash strangeassembly. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. <laughs>